When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to the Geekscape Book Club, and I'm very excited, not just because of the usual excitement to be joined by my pal Eric Connor. I am also excited for, uh, I believe, only the second time uh, we're uh, having one of the authors of uh, one of the works we're discussing, J.M. DiMatteis. J., uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us, taking the time to chat today. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. So uh, we do want to start off talking about Craven's Last Hunt, and I know there's uh, so much more to talk to you about, and we'll, we'll touch on some other things. Um, this is sort of, so when this came out, I was 11, and uh, it, it definitely blew me away. So was I. <laughs> <laughs> just, I was just a prodigy. You wanted to show up that that Jim Shooter story about him. That's right. That's right. I, I beat him by a year. Yeah. No, I think he was twelve I, when he started. I, actually. Oh, you know what? I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're like, but I killed Craven when I was eleven. <laughs> I have a tw- I have a twelve year old. I gotta go talk to him and get well, him that's, up that's his game. Right. He's an well, that was the thing that I was that I was idea. thinking of is that I have an eight year old son named Felix, and I was thinking like. Oh my God, this would be so over his head. I'm like, this had to be over my head, but it's just, you know, it, it, there's so much more to it than, you know, I think that that era of amazing Spider-Man, all the Spider-Man titles uh, are, are personally my favorite, uh, you know, right when I started reading was right when he got the black costume, but um, this seems at least for that era, unprecedented, you know, in 1987, I believe there were plenty of limited series. So this story certainly could have been a limited series, but the idea that for two full months, all three of the Spider-Man books were going to be turned over to you, Mike Zek, and the rest of the creative team, uh, was was that always the plan or did somebody see, you know, extra limited series as an option? No, no, it wasn't the plan in the beginning. Um, Mike Zek and I got hired to be the new team on Spectacular Spider-Man. And then I pitched this story, which is a long story, which I'd been nursing for at least five years in different forms with different characters till we got to Spider-Man. Well, well let me and, let me uh, sidetrack you for a second, because I, I, I want to make sure it's true. Did you originally pitch this, at least a version of this concept as a Wonder Man story and then later as a Batman story? Yes, this is very true. OK, very true. I start, it started as a Wonder Man story, which uh, people, I think, laugh at that because why Wonder Man? But I don't know if you remember, you know, one, there was Wonder Man and the Grim Reaper and and. Wonder Man had the uh, the ability, I think, to regenerate. So I thought, first of all, you know, a story about two brothers who love each other and hate each other at the same time, kind of what I later did with Peter and Harry, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of emotional dynamic there. And then I thought, what if, you know, the Grim Reaper actually kills Wonder Man, buries him alive, and then he comes out of the grave. And originally, my original idea was like six months later, you know, (laughs) and I pitched it to Tom DeFalco, my old friend who happily, thank God, rejected it, (laughs) you know, because what I've seen over the years is that, you know, I have my intentions for the story and the story has its own intentions on where it needs to go and how, what its final form is going to be and when it's going to go out in the world. So as much as I try to control it, I have no control. So, but I like this idea of the hero in the grave and coming back from the grave. So I pitched it uh, as a Batman graphic novel uh, that got rejected by Denny O'Neill. So I only got I got rejected by the best. He rejected it not because he didn't <laughs> like the story, but because this is so early. This is when DC was just starting to do graphic novels. And I pitched it as a graphic and, and Denny's answer was we already have our graphic novel for the year. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was like, all right, I went away for like a year and I came back and then Lynn Wein another great editor and a good friend was editing the Batman books. And I had a, I had a whole sub Joker story going on in there, which was just when they started developing the killing joke. And he thought there were similarities between my story and what they were developing with the killing joke. So I got rejected again. So that's three rejections by three really great editors, you know, but that's, that's the freelance life. You know, it doesn't matter how successful you are in quotes, there's always rejection and you always have to bounce back and find a way through. So when I got offered the Spider-Man gig, I thought, 
here's my chance to do this story. And of course, it was the perfect place to do the story. Um, all the elements came together. Originally, I had a different villain in mind. I, I had created a new villain. Oh. And I pitched it with this new villain. And don't ask me about the villain because I've completely forgotten anything about him. I have no <laughs> idea who he was or what he was, other than it was vaguely sort of a Marvel version of Hugo Strange, that kind of thing. But I was sit literally. By the way, sitting you'll probably remember who the character was when all of a sudden there's like a six part Disney Plus series on the character you pitched, you know, 40 years ago. Like, oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> he was never published, so they can't get him. Okay. okay. <laughs> so I was literally sitting in my office one day, and this is before the internet. So you, you needed to do other things to waste time instead of working. And I was flipping through a Marvel Universe handbook, and I came across Craven. This is literally how it happened. Craven was a character that I never gave a second thought. I actually thought he was a pretty stupid villain. This guy in leopard skin pedal pushers chasing people around trying to shoot them. Um, AKA Christian on a Wednesday night. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you for. Uh, well, we've all, we've all done it, right? <laughs> the 80s were a weird time. <laughs> so, anyway, I see where this conversation's going. Um, so, I came across this, this the, the entry on Craven, but there was this one line, and I don't know whether it was ever in a story or if they just made it up for the Marvel Universe handbook that Craven was Russian. I'm yeah. a huge, huge Dostoevsky fan. And something clicked in my brain like instantly. And I went, oh, I understand this guy. And I know who he is. And I called the first editor on the book was, was Jim Owsley. I called him up and I said, um, who you know is Christopher Priest. Uh, I sure, said, yeah. forget that villain I was pitching. We're going to use Craven. He was like, but I like the other villain. I said, no, no, I, I have this idea. I want to use Craven. So we threw the other guy out. I used Craven um, because Zek was Zek and I were working together, and we had worked together on Captain America, and I knew I needed a third character to kind of contrast uh, Craven's version of Spider-Man and Peter's version of Spider-Man. So I pulled out Vermin, who was a character that we had created when we were doing Captain America, and then all these pieces just came together. The fact that Peter had just married Mary Jane gave an emotional urgency to the story that wouldn't have been there had they not been just married. The right. fact that he was in the black costume. You know, it would have worked with the other costume, but the black costume so suited the story. So all these things came together. And Mike and I had such a good relationship working on Captain America that by the time we were working on Spider-Man together, it was almost intuitive. You know, it was just yeah. we were just clicking. And then Owsley left and Jim Salakrub came in and Jim was the guy that said and no one had ever done this. Where he said, well, you know. You can't have Spider-Man buried alive and we think he's dead in Spectacular Spider-Man while he's fighting Dr. Octopus in Amazing Spider-Man. It's going to ruin the reality of the story. Right. So why don't we run it through all the Spider-Man books for two months? So that's what ended up happening. That was Jim's idea. And I give him all the credit for that. It was a brilliant idea. And everybody's been imitating it ever since. <laughs> that's true. I've, <laughs> I've seen that happen many times. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah and, uh, you know, I think uh, the decision like, well, let's start with uh, Web of Spider-Man, uh, our newest book that uh, my assumption would be maybe not the most popular, you know, from a business standpoint. I think it makes sense because it uh, it certainly helps. And, you know, you're talking about Craven's background, and that's a perfect example of me as an 11-year-old just stuff over my head. I mean, you're referencing, you know, his his father fleeing the czar and, you know, just sort of, you know, all the historical elements of it. And uh, I was just like, hey, Spider-Man's not on this page. Where is he? You know, <laughs> so uh, but I, I and yeah, that it's an interesting thing you said about the the Marvel, the handbook of the Marvel Universe, because I used to get all those when they ca came out mm -hmm. and you would read things. You're like, oh, I had no idea. But <laughs> also at that point, you couldn't you know, do what you do now, which is, oh, let me go to my computer and read a hundred issues that this character right. appeared in and find right. a reference. Right. So uh, that's, that's fairly interesting. And I agree with you, by the way, that to me, Craven was always kind of goofy, you know, by that point, like Marvel tales had sort of reprinted starting with uh, Stan and Steve Ditko's earliest amazing Spider-Man. So, you know, I'd recently seen him and I'm like, all right, I guess, you know, he kind of, he definitely seemed a little goofy. Not and, in this. Uh, <laughs> not, not, no, in this. not in this. And uh, one question before we dive into the story itself, there are elements that uh, I'm surprised appeared in a major, you know, from one of the big two in the eighties, uh, which include Craven with the shotgun. I think it's very clear, you know, we just see the silhouette, but also the fact that, uh, you know, Vermin grabs this lady 
And then the next time we see him, he's just, you know, picking some bones clean. Uh, were there elements of like, okay, we know what this story is, but there's things we can't show, you know? These these are for 11-year-olds in Greenwood Lake, New York. You know, you can't necessarily uh, show some of the more graphic elements. You know, it, no, the only note, this is the amazing thing when I look back on this story, the only note that I remember us getting, the only note of any substance, maybe the only note, was there was one panel with vermin with a lot of bones and a gym shooter said, could you have a few less bones in that panel? And that was it. It was one of those occasions where basically how I wrote the story, how Mike drew the story, that's the story that you got in print. There was no pushback. And I look back now and I go, wow, this was at the time as dark a Spider-Man story, as adult a Spider-Man story as it had ever been done. But you know, you're not thinking that when you're writing it, you're just writing a story. You're following the characters, you're following the story, and you're writing from your heart. And it's only later that you can look back and 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 see what the story really was. Well, and I think also too that what you imply, it's such a brilliant use of like what you also don't show. There's a uh, w- one panel where Vermin pulls that woman into the gutter, and you just see "yum" right. as the one word, and that is as unsettling as any image you could have concocted. Well, you know, it's I think it's always uh, to to indicate something is is ninety percent of the time more impactful than showing sure. it. You know, I grew up on, on the Twilight Zone, you know, and you watch those old Twilight Zones. And a lot of that is shadow and suggestion. You know, one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes was the one with Billy Mummy wishing people out into the cornfield. Right? Right, yeah. And there's a scene where he turns this guy into a jack in the box. Well, if you really watch the scene, you see a close up of the guy's face for a second with a little goop. And what you really see is just a shadow on the wall. That shadow is a lot scarier than if they'd had CGI and could make a man into a jack-in-the-box. You know, the shadow scares the hell out of you. Yeah, I mean, that's literally why the X-Files worked as well as it did, because it was, you know, one of the darkest shows on, you know, I mean, visually. And it was like they were the first one to really use the flashlights everywhere. That, yeah, that's you know, right. Every, that's every right. cop show took it over. And you were like, oh, yeah, I don't know what they're looking for because we haven't seen it. And, uh, yeah, the, the unseen, that's a great point, is uh, always – you know, uh, so much scarier, really, uh, you know, as revealed sometimes in movies where, you know, finally you see the alien or the monster and you go, oh, no, where right. where did the budget go? Back in the shadows. Yeah, well, it's, right. like, it's like Spielberg with Jaws, you know, the, he, he he didn't have such a great shark. So he just you just saw bits and pieces yeah. of the shark and it was a lot more effective uh, that way. Right. Absolutely. So you're talking about the era that these uh, stories were published in. And again, for me personally, it's the it's the sweet spot. Uh, I, I loved Peter and Mary Jane getting married. I was very excited about it. And the black costume. I mean, he was wearing the black costume. The The first uh, issue I ever bought was Amazing 254. And I got uh, Peter Parker 89. So I just I you know, you, it's really like right when that happened. You know, I didn't get the really valuable issues that I should have bagged and boarded, but I was 11. They wouldn't have been worth anything anyway, but I move on. Uh, So uh, and the you know, just reading it again this week, I'm like, oh, wow, this is so new. She's like, oh, I got to pack up stuff from my apartment so we can move in together. I'm like, oh, this is that point, you know, before they even move into the the fancy. And it even may be that when we first started working on it, because we took our time working on it because, you know, for it to run in all those books, we had to have everything pretty much done. Um, It may be that, and I I can't swear to it, when we started, they weren't even married yet. And then it became, oh, wait, they're going to be married. This is a great element to add to the story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, so much, you know, that the whole thing of him coming out of the grave for his love of Mary Jane, well, it would have worked if it was his girlfriend, but it works a thousand times better when it's his wife that he just married. Right. Right. No, absolutely. Go ahead, Mary. I had a question. And I know he, he mentions like the, it seemed like it was the recent death of Ned. And I don't recall where exactly in the timeline Ned's death the, was, was co- correct. This, this, is, this is the moment in no, okay, time where bad. it had just been revealed like five months earlier that Ned Leeds was the hobgoblin, which got retconned right, right. into him being the hobgoblin and then retconned out. Uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've more read a lot about it, uh, that he was never the person who was supposed to be. So they figured out a way that he wasn't, but yeah, Ned Leeds was a, I believe he worked at the daily bugle. And yeah. Ned was, Leeds was someone from the early, you know, yeah, he did go and, issues. He's he, been around I, forever. I think he ends up married to Betty Brant or possibly they're just dating something, or something, but something like yeah. that. Right. And, and again, these, now these are issues I haven't reread in almost 40 years, but I have a, I have a sense for that. So, yeah. So I thought that that, 
you know, tying it into that, that continuity, uh, you know, it definitely takes you back in a way because yeah, Ned Leeds is uh, obviously not who people think of, you know, people who, you know, see the movies and the animated, you know, there's, there's that Ned character in the Tom Holland movies. There's people right. who think of him, but uh, th this guy wasn't as cuddly, at least not when no. we thought he was. The no, even in the early Lee Ditko days, they were more rivals because they, yeah. in the beginning, they were both after Betty, you know? But, well, it's a different Peter. That's what's interesting too. It's like, this is not the Peter who's cracking jokes left and right. Like this is one who, it, like basically page one he's all he's he's feeling it like he's yeah the idea of him being human and what the pain that comes with being human and i thought it was that was really an interesting angle into this world and i i'd say anyone reading this by the way the forward uh what was terrific as far as i felt like i'm glad i read that because it got me in that right mindset for what was to follow in terms of this isn't the usual, you know, Spider-Man who, you know, slings a web and a joke at the same time. This is one who really was feeling the pain of his of his destiny and his fate. Yeah. And I always say that the, the, the advantage to the story, which was a disadvantage to me, was that I was writing that at a very, really, very rough point in my life. And although I wasn't doing it consciously, I was channeling my own pain through these characters. And that's one of the reasons why I think the story still resonates and has an emotional authenticity because it was real. That was what was going into it. It was my own struggles. In some way, I was all of those characters. You know what I mean? I was Peter trying to come back from the grave looking for love. I was Craven losing his mind. I was vermin down in the sewers. You know, they were all, every character in every story is an aspect of our own psyches anyway as writers. But in that in that particular story, I was really channeling a lot of what I was going through. Again, I wasn't doing it consciously. I can look back now and see it. Well, I think that uh, now that you say that, it, it, one of the things that I really enjoyed, it, it sort of puts it into even more perspective, is that they're sort of, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the, the little narrator boxes. I actually don't know what they call them, sorry. <laughs> but uh, they change they're, colors they're and we're- Captions. <laughs> Yeah, right. So it's not the thought balloons. It's just the captions. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And there, there's a lot of first person narrative. Yeah. yeah. And, and they change colors depending on who's saying it. And, you and know, even the get, font is a little yeah, different. Too. Right. Yeah. To get yeah. in the, right. At, at a time where changing the font wasn't uh, as simple as like, all right, I'm hitting this button and now the font right. changes. You know, you've, you've got to get, you know, guys like Tom Orjakowski to like, all right, now put it at a slant. Great. Thanks. And yeah, Rick the, Parker was the letter I have to give. You know, letterers are so incredibly important and they are often and ignored yeah and as I, a writer i always say the lettering is a delivery system for my story and i have seen bad lettering take a good story and drag it down and i've seen great literal uh, lettering actually lift a story up because the reader's not conscious of it and they shouldn't be but that's you know it's coming into your eye and if there's something a little clunky in that lettering the story starts to feel clunky you know, people don't realize it, but it's really important. Right. And and that that's actually why I, I shouted out uh, Tom Marjakowski, because he's basically I don't know a lot of letterers that would have signed up to write that much Chris Claremont dialogue and narration. <laughs> I've talked to Claremont about it. And, he, you know, it's just the fact that it's like, can you get a little smaller, you know, and uh, you're right, though. It's it's interesting because I, I don't read a ton of modern comics, but you will notice the things that aren't great. Sometimes they have these great covers and they have eight variant great covers, but then no one took the time. And I'm not talking about anything in specific, but just general sometimes. Then you open it up and you go, oh, wow, this looks like trash, you know, but the cover was so pretty. And I, I think at this time, obviously, maybe that's the difference, having the, the you know, the handwritten words and all that. But uh, getting back to this story, I just thought really getting the point of view of, Mary Jane in particular, you know, because obviously we usually get a, a lot of thought balloons from Peter in the comic, and we also get the perspective of Craven. But, you know, Mary Jane obviously was uh, always, a, 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 you know, in a certain era, she would have been called a tough broad, you know. And yeah. so when the guys are hooting and hollering her in the alley, she, uh, you know, just <laughs> smarts off to them. And then I look on her face when she thinks Peter has shown up to save her. And then Craven just bludgeons those guys. And yeah. she's like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and she knows instantly this is not right. my husband. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I thought that was great, too. Right. Because so many times when you have these kind of stories, someone's putting on someone else's mask or costume, it it, it, it strains our credibility in terms of how long we believe someone couldn't tell. But within like one moment of him appearing to break that guy's neck, right. she's immediately like that is not Peter. 
Right. Um, and, right. and it's a great moment. I like that also Mary Jane wasn't, she was worried about him, but she was never like hysterical. She was deeply concerned, but even she didn't spill the beans on who he was. Like she still yeah. was really measured, very three-dimensional in her response. She's a great character. I love writing that relationship. There was a talk about her being strong. I did a story later when I was writing Spectacular Spider-Man in the 90s where the chameleon somehow shows up at their house and she beats the crap out of him with a baseball bat, you know? And Peter comes home and he's like, you beat the chameleon? Oh, that's incredible, you know? Yeah. Yeah, she's like, yeah, she's like, yeah I didn't beat up the Hulk, but the chameleon I can take out. And yeah, I think that's, uh, it, it is very interesting because you you read this and, you know, they'd been, well, they dated off and on for at least our passage of time, you know, decades, but they'd been together at this point for a while, but the marriage was new and then she's, sort of her internal monologue is what you imagine that the spouse of a police officer or firefighter yeah. is every yeah. time you go out that, well, you don't go out that door. Every time he swings out that window, that could be the last time I see him. Yeah. And it's like, I, I think that's why she's not hysterical because she's like, this is really what, uh, what I signed up for. One of my favorite scenes that I completely didn't remember is uh, she shows up in the middle of the night at, uh, at Robbie's house and you can see she wants to tell him. Yes. And she's like, I can't, I, I just, you know, it's like, yes, he's a friend. It's not like telling J Jonah Jameson, but I, I can't do this. And uh, the fact that she just leaves without even saying what it is. Uh, I, I just, uh, you know, it's sometimes it's those, those little scenes where, you know, if you wrote a, a one sentence summary, nothing happens in that scene, but that scene's so important, I think to really yeah. let us uh, yeah. know. Her. And it's, you know, it's yeah. always been, suggested at least i always felt that robbie always knew more than he was saying that was always the feeling and that's yeah. maybe why she was drawn to go to him in the first place because some part of it kind of knew that maybe he knew you know right yeah exactly there yeah there, it could be one of those yeah i know that uh at, at least in one point in continuity, they they had a moment where, you know, when Aunt May died long before she was brought back and then died again, she was like, I, I always knew you were Spider-Man. Yeah, it's I like that. Oh, you wrote, wrote that. Yes. I'm sorry. So you wrote Amazing <laughs> yeah. 400. And yeah. I remember seeing it. And so my first thought was, no, she didn't. And then you like, you have to like, think about it for a second. It's like, how could she not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, right. You know, like, okay, up through Amazing Spider-Man 50, she probably had no idea. But there's a point where you're like, oh, yeah, he disappears. He gets great pictures of that Spider-Man fellow. And, boy, he's got broken ribs a lot. Uh, you know, he and falls the timing with headlines always yeah. seems to be in check, too. So Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. But she could never fully admit it to herself. That was the yeah. thing. It was too tra traumatic for her to think about for a number of reasons. Her nephew out doing that stuff. And then Spider-Man was always identified with Uncle Ben's death. So there was a lot of stuff there for her. Um, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of that sort of stuff comes up for Peter in this, you know, sort of as he's about to to crawl out of the grave and, uh, you know, just sort of coming to terms with his life and the, you know, decisions he's made. And, you know, it for, for a uh, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man who is fun loving and kind of freewheeling with the quips man he has a, a lot of darkness you know i mean gwen stacy captain stacy i mean the, his first appearance uncle ben and it's like yeah you know if you'd budged and like put your elbow up that guy wouldn't have gotten away you know just the fact that it's like that's all that's on you you know and uh you know seeing him deal with it i think is it, it's good when that's not all the character is you know when they're always like you know but that's why it's more impactful, at least for me, when you visit, like he's got this occasion where he has to uh, to think about it. Um, and the Craven mindset, you know, going into this, I think one of my favorite things is like, he's like, I just want, well, the spider, but he wants Spider-Man to know I could kill you, but I want to bring you back so that I can show you that uh, I was able to beat Vermin when you needed Captain America's help. What do you think about that? Right, his whole thing is, I don't have to kill you. I've just proved that I'm better than you. After all these years, yeah. finally, yeah. I've proved that I'm better than you. So I'm better than you. And I'm a better Spider-Man than you, yes. too, which I thought yes. was interesting. Yes, exactly. Well. In his mind. And he's so yeah. wrong, you know? He's completely yeah. wrong. Yeah. Was there, uh, was there anything, you know, it seemed like you didn't get a lot of notes. Uh, so no. maybe this is just your decision. It, it seems to me that it's important that you deal with in these six issues at the end the craven 
confession so that it, it clears Spider-Man's name so that it's not like, you know, the next month, uh, all right, everybody still thinks he's this. Uh, was that important to you to kind of re- – I mean, Spider-Man's not beloved thanks to guys like J. Jonah Jameson, right. but – to have had that be the impression of him that he was basically, you know, like Batman, uh, I think, uh, would have, uh, would have damaged a lot of the situations where he's trying to, you know, rescue but someone. I think my out. memory is, and again, this is a long time ago, so I'm giving sure. you these answers. This is what I was thinking. I don't know if this is what I was thinking. We'll believe you. We'll I hope believe. this yeah. is what I was thinking. Right. And then someone will keep repeating this and this will become gospel, you know, but I think it was more a character beat for Craven because in his own warped way, he respected Spider-Man. He proved his point. So here's my confession. He's out of the picture now, you know? And one of the the great things that you have is before Craven kills himself, he just realizes that when he's like, well, you need to kill Vermin. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And regardless, I'm not going to do that. He's like, so he's, he's not just a term I'm using air quotes. He's not just a good guy. He really is a good guy. Like he can't do that. You know, Peter right. doesn't have that in him. And uh, I, I sort of, Found that to be uh, fascinating. Now, uh, Eric, you shared some images, some great uh, <laughs> Mike Zek images uh, that we have here. And uh, this one in particular for our visual audience is uh, fairly early in the story. I love this this look of, of Craven, you know, when he's first taking in all of his potions and he's, you know, basically telling us, the reader, his plan. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, highlighting that, but really just the the full swing we get you know, from that moment at the beginning to the Craven that we're seeing now that, uh, you know, he knows he's getting ready because he's, he's going to die, you know? And uh, I mean, even in 1987, if his uh, father fled the czar, he would be fairly old. So it would make sense that, uh, you know, this is sort of right. And Craven's the suggestion to time. the readers is that, that it's maybe because he's old and worn out, but he knows that he's going to die by his own hand. Right. You know? He knows yeah. that from the beginning. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I think that uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's great to sort of go through it. Now, uh, Eric, I was sort of talking about the first time that I read this, um, but I, I actually haven't asked you. Uh, often, well, let me ask Eric. you before that, because you said yeah. you were 11 years old and I know people yeah. come to me at conventions. I was eight. My mother bought it for me. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, did this like traumatize you in any way? Did it freak you out? Did it? it, it it freaked me out in the way that I knew I'm like, Oh, this is really different. And the, the shot, if, if I was really good at uh, preparing ahead of time, I'd have that silhouette of the shotgun. But that moment where I'm like, Oh wait, I know what's happening here. You know, I'm that old, you know, whereas I don't know if I'd been a little bit younger, I would just be like, Hmm, okay, it's raining. But uh, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it, it is one of those things that when it was going through, I couldn't believe it. I mean, look, you know that at the end of the first issue, Spider-Man's not dead, dead. At least you don't think so. But you're like, all right, well, how does this go? And then we don't see him again until the end of part three, I think. And it's just like, oh, wow, he's really not around for a while. And I think that the the fact that there were stakes of this level um, – I think that some of the vermin stuff was lost on me as a kid because that was the thing that struck me because I've, I've read it a few times, but reading it again this week, I was like, oh, yeah, like, I don't think I thought about him actually eating yeah. the people, even though they call him like a cannibal. So um, it definitely I mean, it stands out. I mean, there are you know, I've been doing various iterations of Marvel shows for a while and a lot of times for like a co-host birthday would come around. I would buy them a trade paperback of this because I'm like, if you don't know this Spider-Man story, I think you have to read it. And I think even though it's so tied into that continuity at that point, I think it's like, I think everybody should really read it. And um, so that's sort of a meandering answer is that it was impactful, but I wasn't, I wasn't horrified, you know, I good, mean, good. it's not like, you know, it, it's it's not like watching, you know, Rambo or something. You know what I mean? So it's like <laughs> I think that stuff would be more called into question, you know, and I, I think we were already we were maybe already, you know, a few a few uh, Stallone or Schwarzenegger movies uh, deep in this era. So uh, I think that uh, just to have that sort of intensity visited upon the, the, the specific Spider-Man corner of the Marvel Universe, uh, I, I can't think of anything that came before that compares to this in tone. I mean, there's, 
just moments like I was talking earlier with with you both about the the horrible things that have happened in Peter Parker's life. And I, I don't think it was for years that I, I realized that he actually kills Gwen Stacy and trying to save her because he sh mm -hmm. shoots the web and cracks her spine or whatever, or breaks her neck. And I was just like, oh, I just thought he wasn't in time as a kid, you know? So it, it's such a, you know, I, I think that, and, and that's of course, Jerry Conway. I think that uh, so many people have the, the greats, at least the ones that I remember have that deft touch of like, this isn't going to freak out kids, but when you're a grown up, you're going to have to put it down and be like, Oh my God, I can't believe but that darkness happened. has always been a part of the character since his yep. origin. I mean, look at what yeah. is his origin. I mean, really, but, and that's the great thing, you know, with, with these, with these great iconic characters, the wonderful thing is you can sort of, as long as you're true to the essence of the character, you can bend them and twist them in a lot of different ways. You can do a completely lighthearted, goofy Spider-Man story. It's absolutely appropriate. And you can do something like this. And it's absolutely appropriate as long as it feels like it's authentically Peter Parker. And that's the other important thing about Spider-Man. It's not Spider-Man. Mask on, mask off. This is the adventures of Peter Parker. Right. Yeah, no, and, and and it's, you know, in that era, the the spectacular title had the long title of Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. And right. I always thought, I always liked that distinction, you know, because it's like, yeah, let's not forget that that's the guy. Uh, so, Eric, um, when have you read this before and uh, how long had it been? I wanted to kind of have you share your thoughts reading it, you know, sure. this week compared to any time you'd read it before. Yeah, I'm I'm a little older than Christian. So, like, I would have I, I would have read this as it happened. Um, and, and I think it was interesting too, cause like the difference you were 11, I think I was 12 going on 13 during this run. So, uh, right around the time I had bar mitzvah. So, uh, becoming a man <laughs> in the eyes of the did you, law. Did you have a Craven theme bar mitzvah? Eric? <laughs> <laughs> he hunted all the guests, right? He <laughs> hunted them down to be like, Hey, this envelope's a little light. What's going on? <laughs> don't make you don't bring this envelope twice. Uh, yeah, it was. You know, I think what that's what's interesting about returning to these titles. Uh, it, the, so many of these themes, you're right. Like, I don't think it, this didn't traumatize me. And on your list of traumatic 80s properties, let's not forget Revenge of the Nerds, which might have been more wow. traumatic than all of them in terms of weird adult content, which we all saw and read. And I don't know how I saw some of the movies I saw in the theater or on HBO, but this comic, I, I don't recall it traumatizing me. I do remember, though, the idea of like what the, the black costume represented and even truly the sort of, I don't know if I would have known the word duality necessarily at that point. Uh, but the idea of like the duality of Peter Parker, I mean, that's one thing you're bringing up. So interesting about Peter Parker is there's so much to him as a character that, I mean, even think taking it us over to the MCU for one second, like the fact that you could have three Peter Parkers in a movie and it didn't feel crowded. Rather, it made complete sense to have the three Spider-Men because it is so many different sides to Peter Parker. And yes. really, the mortality here, that's one thing about you, what you're saying, Christian, is so on about reading this at this age. You know, by the way, as my son's about to get bar mitzvah in a month, um, <laughs> you know, everything comes back to Craven and, and my bar mitzvah. Um, <laughs> it, it, it definitely resonates in a way that as a kid, I, you know, there was one level of this I would have gotten. And I, you know, I was reasonably, I think, you know, s smart as a, as a 12 year old, but I wouldn't have felt it in the way I felt it reading it now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's and, true of anything that we read at yeah. different points in our life. Even if the first time you read something, you're 21, you know, you return to that novel when you're 35 or when you're 45, you're always going to find, you hope if it's a good piece of work that you will always find something different something new and enlightening in the corners of that story. Yeah. Well, and the idea of them feeling their age, that's definitely something as I um, um, get right down the road from 50, you know, like that comes up a lot. Uh, and so I, that was the thing about reading this specific title that it's like, I, I don't pick up Craven's last hunt thinking I'm going to really relate to every character <laughs> in there as much as I did, including vermin. And yet yeah. that's the, the real I, strength of the storytelling here is, they're all so immensely really. Oh, there's my my frame. Well, yeah, I, I I I forgot that you had actually sent it to me. So oh, I love that. Uh, and I read this lady, late at night too. That, so that, lady, was, that yeah. lady being pulled into the manhole cover and just the the yum. Yeah, is uh, 
But uh, yeah, look, I think uh, you said it, uh, JM, that, uh, you know, I think we've all got a little vermin in us at times, you know, there's that feeling of like, no, 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 I can't go out there. I can't, you know, and uh, I, I don't remember a lot of usage of that character and I find him so fascinating. Yeah, I here. used him a lot because I created him, you know, with, with Zach, right. but I don't know if many other people have used him over the years. Yeah. I, later, when I was writing Spectacular Spider-Man in the 90s, we did a lot with him that really, really explored not just him as Vermin, but the man that he was before he turned into Vermin and really did a deep dive into his uh, psyche. Oh, yeah, I'll have to I'll have to dig that up. Um, one one of the uh, sort of enduring things about this story, though, is that you know it, it you definitely have that feeling when it's over that uh, you know yes he goes back to being Spider Man although the 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 next uh, month is like a story where he ends up in an insane asylum so it wasn't right back to uh, the Anna Sentu wrote that it wasn't right. right back I'd kind of forgotten that that was what was next and I was like oh yeah can That's we right. can we can we go have some fun, you know, at some point, you know? And I think uh, it was like, look what he got away with. Let me do one of those weird stories, right, you know? Exactly. And, <laughs> I see uh, you're craving yeah. and I raised you. Right, that's right. Room. That's right. Yeah, and then, and so this is all right before uh, the, you know, the David Michelinie pairing with uh, Todd McFarlane. I mean, we're literally months away from that. And it's sort of like, you know, it was, it was a, I don't know, it was such a big, you know, flashy time. And I think a lot of people remember those stories. And I mean, I loved them when I was a kid. I have, uh, you know, I have no bad memories of them, but it was just like these, these stories like this stick with me a lot more than, than a lot of that other stuff. You know, I mean, you know, X-Men number one is the, the Jim Lee one is the best-selling comic of all time, but uh, I would have to look up and tell you what happened in it, but I can, I can, I can tell you all about the episode where uh, the the issue where Colossus broke up with Kitty, you know, I mean, they're the things that the characters matter so much to you, especially when you're, you know, young and impressionable. Um, right. One thing I wanted to touch and I want to talk to you about uh, other things. Uh, you sort of recently revisited the themes and I, I have the, the screen there in um, this uh, Craven's la uh, sorry, Spider-Man, the lost hunt. So it's not right. actually with Craven and right. uh, I'll have to find an image of it uh, to share. Um, that that's a more recent story and it's from a very specific moment in continuity that I will be fully honest. I had, uh, I had tapped out of Spider-Man for a while at this point when Ben Riley became Spider-Man, but this idea that Peter and Mary Jane had retreated to Oregon and he was like, you know, she was teaching theater in a high school and he was like working at a college. And I think that the most common thread from Craven's last hunt is just Peter's doubt and guilt at times and how that's able to be sort of utilized against him. Uh, talk a little bit about the idea of, you know, revisiting this story, but the importance of the fact that, you know, Craven's not in it, you know, I mean, to, you know, for, and Craven honestly, I hovers over it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He literally hovers over the image. And I honestly couldn't tell you if uh, if Craven has been revived at any point. I, I would I like to hope he wasn't. But he I figure, was. It took yeah, him figure, a while. It took everybody comes back. I think it took yeah. them 20 years before they brought him back. And I think he's dead again. And then they cloned him or something like that. Oh, yeah. Like so. it's almost like the clone is the way out. It's like if it's just like, oh, this is a clone of Craven. It's like, oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah. I know. It's it's funny to think that Jean Grey was only dead for five years of, of real world time. And it was like, you know, yeah, I think it's pretty good that Craven stayed dead for a good couple yeah. of decades there. You know, yeah. uh, in terms of Lost Hunt. Yeah, it was yes. it was very interesting to explore that <laughs> particular pocket. Thank you. <laughs> Collected edition on sale now. Um, and and again, we talk about Mary Jane. To me, the roots of that for a lot of it is just that relationship between the two of them. That's the anchor for this whole story, the Lost Hunt. And then there was a there was a character. Uh, one of the things I wanted to explore with Craven was, well, how did this guy become Craven? I mean, he was this Russian, this kid, you know, booted out of Russia during the revolution. How? Wh where's the link between that kid? And, and this guy running around in the jungle. And I'd had this other character in the back of my head. Her name is Asia Arisha. Um, kind of marinating back there for a couple of years. And when I was talking to Marvel about this story, I thought, oh, I can use her here. And she, A, she's a great new character. And B, she's going to fill in all the blanks on Craven, And we can understand him even more while we can explore this part of Peter's life, which I never had written before when they were out in Oregon. And he had no powers. 
so he he's being attacked by by um, Gregor, who is a, a a disciple of Cravens, essentially, and he's got no powers. So the, the theme for Peter is, well, what is Spider-Man? Is he the webs? Is he the superpowers? Is he the clinging to the walls? Or is he Peter Parker's character as a human being? And and that, of course, is who he is. Yeah, and I think the fact that this is an era where he doesn't have his powers, it, it really allows for sort of the exploration of who he is, you know, just sort of similarly you know, uh, the number of years where Storm didn't have her powers in the X-Men, you know, characters who lose powers, but ultimately get them back. I mean, you know, there's, there's a number of those sort of uh, things where you really get to know them. And, and I think that there's not a lot of times, you know, there's times where, you know, Peter's just beat up and he's not able to, you know, operate at full strength, but to have this be, you know, Mary Jane's pregnant and, you know, just the, the very specific nature of the story. I I, I knew that it had uh, that this had come out, and because I was going to talk to you, I, I wanted to grab it and take a look. And uh, I yeah, I just thought it was it was fascinating the way that it, it explored the same issues, you know, their relationship, Peter's own inner demons, really. And uh, yet it it didn't do. Uh, oh yeah, and, and Craven's not dead anymore, you know. So I, I think that you know to be able to tell it in that way. Um, one, one of the, the things, things I, oh, I just want to say, one of the no, things that I enjoyed exploring there was the fact that now that Peter has no powers, now that he's left Spider-Man behind, he's able to kind of, as often happens in life, you know, we're in the middle of something, we're not processing it. We step away from it and we suddenly realize whatever that thing was that just happened to you. Oh my God, I was in a car accident or I fell off a roof or whatever the thing is. And in the moment you can't kind of, you can't even deal with the trauma of what's happening to you. This is a guy who, when he was like 15 years old, became Spider-Man yeah. and spent years going up against crazies, against total psychopaths. And, you know, while he was in it, he couldn't deal with it. And now that it's done, he's suddenly beginning to re realize what he'd been through. You know, the trauma that, that being Spider-Man caused him. Always doing it for the right reasons because, you know, that's who Peter is. But I really enjoyed getting into that corner, which I think had never been explored, which is like, holy crap, what, what was I doing all those years? I could have died on any given day, you know? Yeah, no, the uh, the idea that as long as you continue running forward as Spider-Man, you don't think about it. But to to, you know, basically you get, quote unquote, home. And you can't go out and do it. So it, it's really like dealing, you know, obviously with the soldiers with PTSD. And yes, exactly. Stuff. Exactly yeah. right. Exactly. And, right. and that's very much uh, who he is. Uh, I, uh, you know, as, uh, the transition uh, mentioning soldiers, I do want to touch very briefly on something that has been announced on uh, DC's production slate. Uh, someone, when they found out you were going to be on, they wanted me to talk to you at least briefly about uh, creature commandos. <laughs> and I, went and dug dug up uh I, I i did a free subscription to uh dc universe infinite i think it's called and uh i read some of the earliest stories and i think it's it's a fun idea uh the creature commandos which i, I want to ask you about but there was one story that i was just like i, I can't imagine turning into an editor and having them even let someone pencil it there's a story where uh, the creature commandos end up in a town in Germany. This is obviously all in World War II. And they're these kids who have been brainwashed to, uh, you know, do they're doing everything for Hitler and they've been in, given super strength. And uh, one of the kids beats his mom to death and the other kids all chime in. And I'm like, oh, my God, you want to talk about stories that would have traumatized <laughs> me if I'd read it as a kid. And I'm like, I, I can't imagine like saying to an editor at DC or Marvel, because like, can the kids beat the mom up? Is that OK? <laughs> you know it's so funny i'll relate it to craven too it took me years to like look back and realize oh craven is a horror story i didn't realize when i was like this basically it's a it's a superhero horror story and you know creature commando creature commandos was something i cooked up at the literally at the very beginning of my career i was just starting out yeah i was working with len ween a wonderful editor and he wanted a series for weird war tales and i'd already had this story that i was going to pitch the book was called weird war tales so I thought, okay, weird war, monsters fighting World War II, you know? And yeah. that was as deep as it really went, you know? Um, and I did the first six, I think half a dozen issues. And it was the very beginning of my career. This is a hundred million years ago. And I forgot about it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, 
here we are all these years later and you know james gunn is doing the series which has evolved from the version that i did but sure, it's still yeah. based on it you know and it's like you just never know these days what's going to come around again what's going to pop up what obscure character that you created is going to show up in a movie or a tv show it's uh so i'm delighted let them do it you know i'm, I'm happy to do it i actually james gunn is a really really good guy he really loves comics he took the time a couple of months ago. We sat down on Zoom. We had a really nice chat together. Um, just a great guy. I really, I have great faith in what he's going to do with the whole DC universe. Um, yeah, so and I think that 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 that's so apparent with everything he does. You know, uh, obviously, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, but then also like, yes, the Suicide Squad, but that Peacemaker series. Just the the you know sort of you you can tell when somebody loves comics and when somebody's like, oh, that'll be interesting, you know. And I think. Right. You know, one doesn't necessarily mean success versus the other. Like a great example, I don't know that Christopher Nolan loves comic books in any way, but he had a great take on Batman that right. obviously worked really well. And then James Gunn, it's it's a lot different, you know. And uh, I think, and he likes these obscure corners and these weirdo characters, you know, from left field. So that's why I think he was drawn to Creature Commandos. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's the hope with these characters too. Over you know the the lifeline of them. It's like you then get people who are in a position to get these stories made and made the right way, basically. And who really the, the material speaks to, you know, and I think that's one thing, you know, with the various superhero movies and shows, you could see the ones where maybe the showrunners or the head writers, the directors, really are fans and yeah yes. a real appreciation yes. like i was even thinking he was a horror director but scott derrickson's take on dr strange i mm -hmm. thought was really yeah a great example yeah. and and it became this like surprisingly moving story about faith and you know i think that's the hope right is like you do get uh a, a james gunn who's gonna come and do peacemaker better than anyone <laughs> could have done peacemaker because he really had a re his own connection to the material too. No one else probably would have even thought of doing Peacemaker. No. And that's the great thing. That's where his sensibility comes in. And the other great thing, you know, you'll see him on social media just just hyping some comic that he read that he liked, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, they announced Creature Commandos and all of a sudden it's back in print. That means more royalties for us, you know? It all it all works out very nicely in the end. Yes, it's sort of what you're talking about, about obscure characters, and, and it's surprising. I was thinking about this in the, the latest uh, uh, Spider-Verse movie. Uh, I think Bill Mantlo created this spot but the idea that the spot is not just in that movie, but he's like the major. The ma right, exactly. Yeah. And I, I always I, say the truth of the matter is there's no such thing as a second or third tier character. You yeah. get the right approach with that character. And that's why I always like working with, quote, second and third tier characters. When Giffen and I did Justice League, most of what we had were second and third tier characters. That gave us the freedom to make them our own and do interesting things with them. Whereas if you're doing Batman and Superman, they're looking over your shoulder telling you what you can't do. Right. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And, and you know, it, I was, uh, you know, relieved to hear, but sort of what you were talking about, about the freedom you had doing this Spider-Man story. I, I'm a little bit surprised, you know, in a good way where, uh, you know, that they weren't like, no, no, Spider-Man doesn't do this. He wouldn't do that. You know, he wouldn't. Well, the 80s, I tell you, the 80s were, were an amazing time in comics, both in terms of creator-owned comics, because that's when I started doing my own creator-owned stuff. And even the, ma the mainstream stuff, there was just a lot of freedom to play and experiment and push the boundaries of the form. You know, I don't think if I had done Craven, you know, if I had pitched it, you know, 20 years later, maybe I could have done it, but I don't think I could have done it in the way that I did it then. And certainly not the way where it basically came out without a comet changed. Right. No, I mean, and, and, and that's fascinating. And then, you know, sort of the, the era that sort of follows this is the one where it turns into like, yeah, but can we get Wolverine in there? Or how about Venom? You know, when they start to go like, hey, wouldn't it make sense for Ghost Rider to show up? It's like, no, actually it wouldn't. But <laughs> Well, I think uh, also, you know, if we had done it another time, it would have been, well, can we? Can this be like a three-year arc? You know oh. what I mean? Yeah. You, know, <laughs> you, know, right. you know, so it's, it's, it was great that we got to get in, do it in six issues and get out. And it's a complete story. So someone, and I really appreciate the fact that there are people still discovering this story now. Yeah. Coming up to me and going, I just read that last week. Man, it was great because it's self-contained. Yeah. You don't need a lot of information to go into the story. Maybe you need you want to look up who Ned Leeds was, but it's not going to affect your, your reading of the story if you don't no. look up who Ned Leeds was. Um, so I, well, I really I like that. I like that it's it. You know, when you're working on something, no one's thinking 
oh, this is a story that will last for decades. You know, you're just working on the next gig and you're, you're doing the best job that you can possibly do. And especially in those days, they were just starting to reprint things in hardcovers and all this stuff. On to the next gig and move on. So the fact that we're all these years later, this book is continually being reprinted. People are rediscovering. You want to talk about this story from 1987? It's in, it's deeply gratifying to me, you know? And well, I imagine the movie Aaron? is going to bring even more eyes onto this title The Craven well. movie, yeah. Mm -hmm. The Craven movie with yeah. uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson, which yeah. uh, was supposed to come out in October. But, uh, you know, that that's sort of the interesting thing that happens with Sony. You know, the Madam Web movies coming out in less than a month. They continue to tell Spider-Man stories without Spider-Man. And, you know, I think with, with mixed results, uh, to, to be honest, you know, I mean, I think uh, Morbius wasn't well received in general. People liked the first Venom, you know, I mean, and it, it's it's cool to see these characters. But in some cases, they work best when they interact with Spider-Man, you know, and uh, right. but I think, uh, you know, time will tell. I mean, I think obviously Craven, as as evidenced by Craven's Last Hunt, there's plenty of time before he even knows about Spider-Man. So, uh, you know, we can uh, see yeah. what kind of story they tell uh, with this. Uh, in terms of a variety of stories, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was uh, the demultiverse, which right. uh, I, I Let me say one thing before we move yeah, on to that, if I can, please, because the one thing course. we didn't talk about is such an important element, which is the art, which is Mike Zek. Yeah. Yes. And Bob McLeod, whose beautiful inking over Mike was phenomenal. Mike Zek is an impeccable storyteller. And, you know, when you're writing comics, especially, uh, well, not, not even especially, when you're writing comics, you don't, sometimes, especially on monthly books, you don't know what you're going to get. And, and with Mike, you always know that you are going to get impeccable storytelling. You know, sometimes you'll see, you'll see comics where, where uh, especially if you're working Marvel style. Marvel style, you write a detailed plot first. They draw the story, you get the art back, and then you dialogue. Well, say Craven leaps, you know, for, oh, the character leaps from roof to roof. He stumbles, he falls off the roof. It sounds like a simple thing, but some guy might draw that in such a way that you have to then add this balloon that says, Oh, I just stumbled and fell off the roof because the art <laughs> did not deliver that. Mike, uh, every single thing you ask for is so clear. Look at Craven's face behind you. All the emotions, all the surface emotions are completely clear. He is as good an artist as ever worked in this business. So when I got that artwork back, I don't have to explain anything that's going on in the pictures. And that's why that story is filled with first-person narration. It's yeah. all in Peter's head and Mary Jane's head. If someone else had drawn that story, I might have spent, had to spend half the, half the time explaining other things, writing it in a very different way. So, you know, Mike's contribution is, is, is incalculable to the, to the success of this book. And then Bob McLeod with the beautiful inking. And again, Rick Parker, who had a real challenge with the lettering and everybody. You, to make a comic book work, every single element, the, the coloring, everything has to work. If one, I've seen it. I write a great story. Someone else does some really great art. You put them together and there's the chemistry is not there. So you need people that are delivering their best and you need that chemical reaction between the creators. And it's not always there. And we were lucky. It was there. And, and, and you can't make that happen. No, I mean, and, and Mike Zek is, uh, you know, certainly one of those, you know, greats that, you know, doesn't get mentioned, you know, when you start going down a list, he doesn't come up as early in that list as maybe he should. I mean, right. that, I that Punisher miniseries from a few years before this is still the definitive. I, I've read a lot of Frank Castle stories, but that's what I think of the way that that looked. And obviously, you know, they had him do Secret Wars, you know, I mean, so, yeah, uh, yeah so it's... Uh, I think I can certainly understand what you're saying, you know, and especially sometimes when you go and reread some of these things and some fill in artists are great. Like I, I think uh, Rick Leonardi's style is very unique and specific. And then you'll see others uh, who you're just like, Oh, I've never, who is this? This is somebody who, you know, got to try out. And, you know, it's uh, yeah. I think that when all the whole team's working together, obviously that's when we get the best stuff, you know, that's yeah. why, you know, that's why people will talk about, you know, eras like, you know, just to go back to X-Men, people talk about Claremont and Byrne, you know, and like that's the the era that you usually hear about. People talk and about because they Brent. had that chemistry. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it, you don't even have to have a personal chemistry with someone. Happily, Mike and I really got along as well. But there's a chemistry that just happens on the page, you know, and sometimes yeah. you start to work with somebody and I don't know how it's happening, but it's just there. And someone else 
it's just not there. Just the same way it is with people. You meet somebody, you connect, you meet someone else. It's like you're shooting arrows over each other's heads, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've, I've in, known, in I've baseball, not, I've, I've not, the battery. Well, I've, known Eric, I've, I've known Eric for years and I'm still trying to, to you make just it just can't connect. I know. You can't I even know. talk right now. What were you going to say, Eric? <laughs> I was just saying it's your battery mate in baseball, right? You pitcher yeah. and the catcher. And, and I think also here too, when you bring up the art, I, I, there's so many different styles within these six issues. I mean, you have some of it's really grounded. Some moments are hyper-realistic. Some moments are hyper-gothic. And yeah. then you have these, like, the idea of the afterlife. One of my favorite uh, panels was one where it's it's almost like like Peter looks like a little embryo in a sea of white. White, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thought oh, yeah, that was like, that, a yeah. bold choice. And one that is so markedly different from a lot of the rest of the comic. And then moments like this pure horror yeah where uh, he's yeah, licking, the, uh the, the officer the lady reminds him of his mom so he doesn't eat her but at the same time he also <laughs> licks yeah that was the like, image you're this is the one i was trying to yeah, get. yeah. this and image so now all that's in the plot right but give yeah. that to five different artists you'll get five yeah. different versions of that back and you're going to get the very very best version and more from mike and then the great thing about writing plot first is then you get the artwork and and sometimes in your head, there's a sequence you think you're going to have to write a lot, and you get the artwork back, and you realize it's all there. I could put two words on that page, you know. Uh, so it's this wonderful chemical interaction when you're reacting to the artwork. My plots are very detailed. There's a lot of information in there. There's dialogue, but I love uh, getting that art and responding to it. I also love writing full script too. You know, I'm working on a project now. It's full script, but there's some magic in working in that style where you get finally you react to the artwork before you do your final script. Well, yeah. actually, Christian, if you could go go back to the last one too, where he's crawling, where crawling so, out for our audio audience, uh, yeah. uh, Peter in the suit is crawling out of the grave, yeah. and it says, "I love you." Obviously, he's thinking about Mary Jane. Yeah, in the middle of a lightning strike, too. Like yeah. it, it's 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 just such a. There's so much happening in this one image, and yeah. so much story, as you were saying there before. Yeah, well, uh, I, I do want to make sure that we get a chance to talk about the, the multiverse. And I, I, I figure instead of me trying to summarize it and saying, did I get it right? Why don't you talk about sort of these four projects and the, the creators that you collaborated with? On right. I'll, I'll, tr I'll try to keep it brief. So, so I've been thinking for years uh, about doing a Kickstarter because I love the idea that you're going right to your audience. You know what I mean? It's sure. like there's no there, there's no wall between you and the audience. You just bring the material right to them. And long story short, I was talking to a friend, David Baldy, who has a long history in television as a writer and a producer. He's, and one of the reasons I didn't want to do a Kickstarter was it's too much work. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of work. And David said, "I'll work, I'll do it with you. We'll, we'll be we'll be business partners on this, and we'll do it together." He said, "What ideas do you have?" And I pitched him a bunch of ideas. And thinking we'd take one and we do a four-issue miniseries and, and a kickstart that. He said, it was David's idea. Let's do all of them. Let's do four different number one issues. So that's what we did uh, toward the end of 2022. We launched uh, Layla in the Lands of After. Um, thank you for putting it up there so I can remember everything. <laughs> with John McMattis, who, who I've worked with before, one of my all-time favorite artists. Uh, Any Man uh, with David Baldion, who I've worked with on a Spider-Man project. God Sam with Matthew Dow Smith and Wisdom. Uh, with Tom Mandrake. Tom was an artist who I'd wanted to work with for years. And each one is in a different genre, different tone, different style. So uh, we did a Kickstarter and it was very successful. And the idea was uh, they'll vote and they'll vote for which title they like the best. And that's the one that we'd complete the miniseries. But we also gave them the option to vote for all of them. And when well, the votes were tallied, what got the most votes was please continue all of them. So hopefully within probably the next two or three months, we will be launching the multiverse phase two with the second chapters of all these books. I'm working, we're all working on them now. We're getting all the artwork in. I've written 90% of the scripts and it's been one of the most exciting and gratifying projects I've ever been involved in. It's really, really fun. But they're, like I said, they're all different. Layla is sort of an all ages Oz like fantasy about the afterlife. Any man is closest to a, a, a superhero story Godsend is sort of like Kirby Gods meets Philip K. Dick. Uh, Wisdom is a supernatural Western. So they're all, all very different. And uh, I, I guess the uh, the easiest way to go is uh, your website, JM uh, D. Mateus. 
D-E-M-A-T-T-E-I-S.com. Yes. And look, I even said that with my glasses off. That's, that's uh, great. That's, that's great. <laughs> I'll plug, uh, let me the, plug two more things. Yes, please do. Go. So the past couple of years, I've written a couple of, uh, of novellas. Uh, the first one is called The Excavator, came out in uh, 2022. And the most recent one is called The Witness, came out uh, last September. They're, uh, they're, they're stories I'm really, really proud of. You can get them on Amazon. It's prose. But they're also they're illustrated. So like the witness has ten beautiful illustrations by J. H. Williams III, who's one of the the, the best artists working in comics these days. Um, the excavator had ten ten uh, illustrations by a wonderful illustrator named Vasilis Godzillis. Um, so I wanna I wanna direct some people to my prose work as well. It's been really great yeah. working in prose again, which I, I've done over the years. But this is the first time in a while that I've and I'm working on a third one right now. So those are those are there, and also coming up in April, a new Spider-Man miniseries, Shadow of the Green Goblin, and a bunch of other stuff that I can't talk about yet. Is uh, is Shadow of the Green Goblin something that's uh, current continuity, or uh, you, uh, you know, it's I, as I, early in continuity as we can possibly get? He's been Spider-Man for maybe three weeks. Oh, I after, love that. about three weeks yeah. after Uncle Ben's death. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. so that's yeah. uh, no, that's a but it's a deep dive into the Osborne family and that dysfunctional stew, and Peter and Aunt May still dealing with the grief of of Uncle Ben's death and not really sure. dealing with it. And uh, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Oh, that sounds great! And uh, just take a quick moment because uh, I know from your website that uh, you do these uh, these workshops. Uh, just uh, take a take a moment and explain what that's like. Right, I, I haven't unfortunately I haven't done the workshop in a while. Uh, uh, I did a couple online during COVID, but I I was doing these these three day writing workshops called Imagination One Hundred and One, and I brought them online. And hopefully within the next year or so, I will get back to that. But the other thing I do is, is I have something called Creation Point Story Consultation, where I work with, work with folks folks one on one. So if you have a comic book series you want to work on or a screenplay or a novel, people come to me and we get a, we get on Zoom or Skype or whatever, and we we work on it. So I'll sit down with someone from the initial idea through the completion of their four-issue miniseries, developing and working with them on that, or their screenplay or their book or whatever it is. And it's really, it with the workshop and with this, as I'm teaching, I'm learning, you know, because everyone you work with, you're learning something from because you're watching their process. It's, it's really, really gratifying. So if anyone's got an idea, something that they've been wanting to finally get out into the world, if you go to my website, you'll see the information about Creation Point. And, and the next time we do a workshop, that'll be on my website as well. Great. Yeah, no, and I'm sure it's uh, satisfying when, you know, somebody that uh, you've worked with, you know, at least, you know, even if it's just like, oh, I got a positive uh, letter back from a publisher, there's some interest. Uh, you know, I always I one of one of the great uh, success stories is that obviously people who know Spider-Man and, and Marvel, uh, they know the uh, artist Mark Bagley. Uh, what I remember is that he was the winner of the Marvel tryout book. That's and, right. uh, you know, and and just you know, and you hear about uh, some other artists, you know, just showing up with portfolios at conventions and, and whoever it is that they approach, whether it be an editor or a writer, is just like, oh, this is too good to not, you know, use. So, yeah, taking, taking the that. Flip side is, the flip side of that is there's a lot of rejection. I have a, a drawer full of my old rejection letters that I still have saved because that's part of the process as well, because every rejection teaches you, you know, and I always say success in the arts it's talent, but it's also will. You have to be able to deal with rejection and you have to be open to criticism. So you need a thick skin and a hard head. But if you have that along with your talent, you will be able to succeed. There are people that have a lot of talent, but the minute you give them a critique, they're going to run screaming. They can't handle it. You know, well, you go ahead. Well, Eric teaches screenwriting, so uh, okay. I, I'm sure he can't relate to that at all. Uh, the, the, and the rejection the, never ends. It doesn't matter yeah. how successful someone is. Yeah. Like you saw, when I, I told you the story of how many times I had to pitch this idea before it finally took shape as Craven. I've had stories that I've worked on and pitched and went away with and came back for 20 years before they finally came out. And other stories, you pitch them and they buy it that afternoon. You never know. But if you don't have a thick skin, you're not going to make it out in the freelance trenches. You're just not, no matter how talented you are. Yeah, I don't remember where I came across it uh, while I was preparing for today's conversation, but he, I think it was on your website. Maybe you posted like a screenshot. You had a rejection letter from the 70s where it was basically like, 
I mean, you can keep trying if you want to, but you know, this isn't really that good. I mean, that was the first that letter I got yeah. from Paul Levitz at DC That's Comics when I pitched him some ideas <laughs> and he, he shredded my stories. He <laughs> criticized my typing and he was right about everything, but it, but he also said, feel free to submit again. So to my eyes, all I saw in giant font was feel free to submit again. You know what I mean? Someone else might have just run screaming. He hated my stories. He hated my typing, you know? But I was like, I can submit again. I'm going to keep doing this until I sell this guy something, you know? And oh, it took yeah. a while, but I did. Yeah, I think you had a different one that uh, something you just said reminded me of. It was like, you should invest in a good typewriter. <laughs> so, oh, no, I think it was a get a proofreading service. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Oh, a, typewriter, no, a typewriting service. You're right. Get, get a, use a typewriting service. I, I, I finally figured out the typewriting thing well, as the years went by. <laughs> on that end, too, one thing I, I think, you know, get in your forward, but also what you're saying here about, it, you know, um, it's great reading the forward because there's so much optimism within it amidst the rejection saying, and I did this and I was really proud. And they said, no, and I did this and I was proud. And they said, no, but this idea <laughs> that the story almost like yes. found where it needed to go. Yes. Right. Yes. I, I loved how you talked about the story. Like it's almost it's like an its entity in and of itself. Yeah. It really, really is. And what I've learned over the years, the process of writing, and it, it applies to music. It applies to any art. I think mm -hmm. it's trusting your unconscious and trusting the process. The story itself is part of that process. And often your unconscious knows a lot more than you do. And you have to, you know, I learned early on, sometimes you think you're hitting a wall, it's writer's block. It says, it's not, take a breath, walk away, let your unconscious work this out. And all of a sudden there's a movie playing in my head with the solution to the story, you know? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's great to think about all of it, and yeah, there's uh, there's nothing better than rejection letters from people who went on to do well. You know, it, it, you you don't want the collection of rejection letters for you know right. Which, and oh, credit yeah, no. to Paul Levitz for taking the time to yeah. even read the stuff in the first place and say, feel free to submit again to give me feedback. You know, a lot of people I've seen it over the years that you encounter people, you give them the feedback, and you realize they don't want feedback. They want you to tell them that their story is great as it is. Yeah. You know, oh, that's great. you have to be open. If my feeling when I started out was like, tell me, tear it apart. It's okay. I want to learn. And the only way I'm going to learn is if you tell me what I'm doing wrong. Well, uh, JMD Mateus, uh, obviously.com. And, uh, you're also on social media. Uh, people can, uh, interact with you there. I really appreciate you taking the time. And honestly, it gave me an excuse to reread Craven's last hunt. So, uh, you know, there's no complaints, uh, from me there and obviously check out everything uh, that you have going on. And I'm uh, very intrigued in that, uh, green goblin story. Uh, quick note for our audience. Uh, next month we will be back talking about echo the saga of, uh, Maya Lopez, which is, uh, I know very little about that character. The first time I saw her, she was on the Hawkeye TV series. And on our other show, Marvel Movie Talk, we did just cover the five-episode uh, drop of the series. So it seemed like a great time to explore the comic book version, who my understanding is that at some point ends up with the Phoenix Force but this is way before that. So uh, you'll see that next time. Uh, thanks again uh, to everyone who uh, was watching. Thanks again to JM and uh, we'll see you next month. Bye everybody. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.